Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the curator of the museum dedicated to Chrissy Teigen's Instagram posts, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Michael Connor, the artistic director of Rhizome, a digital art community affiliated with the new museum in New York City, where I am right now. Rhizome is currently running an exhibit, a fascinating exhibit, at the museum highlighting the history of art made on the internet. It's called The Art Happens Here click here, apparently, on your book, which is really wonderful. They have a wonderful book affiliated with it. Michael, welcome to Recode Decode. It's great to be here. So I'm so excited about this because there's a, there's a couple in there I do recall. The Dolly clone, I recall oh, yeah. that, and some others. I've been around since the beginning of the internet. We I, was, I covered it very early. Um, and art was sort of a something I hadn't thought of, although it, it occurred on it all the time. And there's memes and there's creativity and all kinds of things. So I'd love to sort of get a, an idea of how this came together. And then I want to talk about the actual individual pieces. And there's some you want to focus in on. So let's talk about how it came together. Sure. Well, I think... That story is sort of inextricable from the story of Rhizome itself, which is an organization that was founded in 1996. So, mm-hmm. you know, pretty early in yes, the life cycle such. of the public internet. And right. um, it came together as a kind of online community to bring people together to share information and talk about this this new kind of Me. communications platform and how it could be used artistically. Right. But very quickly after that, it evolved into a conversation about how works that were made through that new platform could be um, sustained over time. So in mm-hmm. 1999, Rhizome began an archive of digital art called the Art Base. All right, talk about that because things go away on the internet. There's been the Internet Archive to save websites and and things that happen, like you can find old Yahoo's, old Google's, the original things. But the internet, by its nature, even though there's a famous line in the movie about Facebook, the the internet's written in pen, not pencil. Um, it does go away. It does. It has the ephemerality that is very different. And in art, that's the case. Sure. I actually don't like to use the word ephemerality. Okay. about the internet because I think that the internet kind of doesn't have to go away. Right. There is something that's very performative about the internet. Um, that's one of the reasons why we call our exhibition The Art Happens Here mm-hmm. because the art is happening. It's not a passive object on a shelf. It's sure. something that happens in encounters between people and machines. And um, what we find is that over time, internet culture is devalued. So people don't recognize its value and they're not putting the resources um, institutionally into sustaining Absolutely. it. That's a and also point. companies don't um, kind of consider the kind of downside of obsolescence as they push forward for always yeah. having a new a new platform and a new thing. Right. And right. so there is a kind of cultural aspect to the way that internet art kind of doesn't last. All we, right. So you had been collecting and preserving it because what was the, the idea that it should be collected and preserved like other works of art? 
Well, Rhizome is really um, an organization that focuses on a very contemporary form of culture, but we do that with the knowledge that, that there's a conversation that people can draw on from the past. So we, we're always trying to support younger artists and emerging works and new kinds of practice that aren't even recognized as art yet. Mm-hmm. But in, in doing so, we want people to, to know, like, there's this whole history that you can draw on and, um, and kind of bring forward as a resource for the present. All so, right. Yeah. So go ahead. So. Um, well, so this exhibition is an opportunity to kind of bring together different positions from the history of internet art and to, I think, present them in ways that show how they are kind of relevant to this moment in time as well. Right, um, which is any exhibition wants to do that. But so you, <laughs> but, but you were preserving these over time. Oh, yeah. And with what in mind? Where, where were, were they presented somewhere or are they in this archive? Well, the question of how to preserve internet art is like a really complicated and interesting one. But I think Rhizome has a particular take on that conversation. Um, you know, we're sort of interested in, in the idea of internet art being re-performed and, um, and thinking about how this very active format can be, can, you know, can be treated in a way that doesn't fix it necessarily in a, in a given position, but instead allows it to, to kind of live. So there's a couple of different technical strategies that we've developed in particular that we found to be really suitable um, to our preservation strategy. Mm-hmm. One of them is um, emulation. Um, our preservation director, Dragon Espenshed, is a really um, key advocate of emulation as a way of bringing works from the past into the present. And one of the interesting things about emulation, which is using a piece of software to imitate another piece of software, mm-hmm. is that what we're doing when we use emulation is not preserving the artwork necessarily. We're preserving the software that made it run. Mm-hmm. And so the, the real problem isn't keeping a hold of the work, but it's keeping a hold of all the cultural right. co- and technical context that surrounds it. Right. Which is kind of different than, I think, preservation in a museum traditional context. Well, except, you know, it's interesting you say that because I was at the Smithsonian 10 years ago and they had all these computers they had to save because they were trying to save them for posterity, all the various computers and devices. And one of the problems is, two problems actually, one is they had were missing some of the software to use it, to be able to use it and the, the degrading of that software. And then secondly, the people who knew how to use it. And so they would have to find really old people to work some of the very early technologies, which I was, and if not, they were just blocks of like bricks. They were like bricks that didn't do anything. And so it was a really interesting, so they brought me in, they're like, what do we do? And I was like, I don't know, like, I don't something. Like, it was it was a really interesting question. I guess go to the companies and hope that they preserve them. Yeah, and, you know, keeping hold of that knowledge is an important part of what we do. We actually mm-hmm. have a software curator, um, mm-hmm. Lindsay Jane Moulds. She's not, um, you know, a dinosaur of the Internet. She's someone instead who researches these tools. Historian. Yeah, you know, one of her kind of key projects is to look at browsers of the past and kind of research and understand their different affordances, what they were capable of presenting and what they weren't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... You know, there's a lot of like really practical ways that comes into play. I can show you one sure, now if, sure. if you want to do yeah. that. Um, one of the works in the gallery exhibition at mm-hmm. the New Museum, mm-hmm. they're, they're not all browser-based, but one of the ones that is, is called Skin on Skin on Skin by um, a group called Entropy at Super. And it's really... This, what year? This is from 99. Mm-hmm. And it's actually just turned 20 years old a few a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It's a good post-Valentine's Day work because <laughs> it's actually a series of 25 internet-based love letters that uh-huh. they sent back and forth, multimedia love letters. And um, they did it after meeting online on hell.com, which you may... Oh, I remember. Yeah. And the work was actually intended to be private just for them, but other users of hell, like, kind of, I think they stumbled upon their private directory and then mm-hmm. it became public. Right. So then they decided to sell it. So they made it a pay-per-view artwork in the early internet. Mm-hmm. But the work involves all kinds of things like um, Shockwave, and flash and sound and all these other things. So finding the right browser that ran this work, 
um, you know, took that kind of knowledge of Yeah, Steve Jobs ended that, if you remember. <laughs> yeah. He did it at one of our conferences, actually, which was interesting. So let me see this. Yeah, so in order to uh, make this work accessible on the web today, our preservation team, led by Dragon, um, has set up an online emulation um, environment um, using a platform that they call Emulation as a Service with the University of Freiburg. For those who aren't looking at this, Windows 98 just yeah. came up. So we're starting Windows 98 in our in our browser here. So, you know, Netscape just came up. What this is doing is really sort of spinning up an instance on the cloud for us to kind of access this work interactively through a, you know, essentially like a live video connection. So that's why at the beginning you saw that I was able to choose the location of my server mm -hmm. because having a low lag time is important to the experience of the work. It's not like a video where you can buffer and have that kind of lag. So these are some very sort of high production value pieces that they made just for one another as a way of kind of getting to know each other and developing that intimacy. And there's a lot of really rich detail and depth in them. So here we're looking at um, Oria, who is one of the two people, sent a picture of herself and you can mouse over it and it animates the picture and you can see her partner underneath. Here's a nice yeah, goth image heart. of a beating heart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you can, you know, it's a step beyond Tinder. Mm -hmm. No. <laughs> but many years before, I yeah, guess. Yeah. So you it know. was a way of meeting people and impressing people via photos or graphics or things like yeah, that. Yeah, each of these is a composition that they made. And I'm also fascinated with the idea that you could like kind of take it and sort of sell it as a work in its own right. way, like an epistolary novel of the mm -hmm. early internet age. Right. And so what were you looking for when you were bringing together the show? What was the co the conceptual ideas? Because like, some are browsing. Talk about the different types of things that you were presenting, browser-based versus, and which there was Netscape browser, then there was other, during that time period, that was the dominant browser, actually. Yeah. Well, when we were doing the show, so I should explain that okay. this show comes out of an effort called Net Art Anthology, which mm -hmm. is an effort to retell the history of net art through 100 works. Right. So in the research of the net art history, we've seen people try and tell a story you know, in, in book form in different ways, but we wanted to kind of um, look at the works themselves and let a story emerge from that in an almost fragmentary way. Mm -hmm. um, and we were inspired by the model of anthology film archives here in New York, which has mm -hmm. this sort of essential just cinema list. Just you, walked by yesterday. Yeah, it's like an incredible resource. They put together this list of films in the 70s that they considered to define the art of cinema. So we, we know that project has its own problems, but we thought it was an interesting way to look at net art. Um, so we did this work online. You can see it at anthology.rhizome.org, and you can see the 100 works and like all these different stories about them there. Um, this exhibition brings together 16 of those, and we wanted not to like make a best of or a particular time mm -hmm. period, but instead to think about like what are the problems that come up when you're thinking historically about net art and digital culture? Mm -hmm. And you know what are the kinds of questions that we think people should be asking about that? So the works are intended to show a diverse range of media forms and um, positions on the question of archiving. And this one in particular is an interesting in relation to that because it started just as this encounter between people, not, not something that's intended to last over time necessarily. Mm -hmm. But then it had this other life through its circulation as a kind of, you know, a product for sale. But then it went away. Like, the artists haven't seen this work in 20 years right. almost. Where was um, it for them? Was it on their... It was, but they weren't, you know, they didn't have the kind of emulation in place to right, sort of access. Yeah, yeah, they haven't seen it. got rid of that in, computer, right? I guess it was 2004 was the last time they'd seen it before mm -hmm. we presented it online. Right. It kind of dealt with the question of archives in two ways. Like, one, the idea of public circulation being its own form of archiving mm -hmm. by putting it into people's hands. And the other, 
the sort of institutional question of archiving, like how do we resist these forces of technological obsolescence and make things, you know, continue Which to have Which is an life. artwork in and of itself. It's an art theme, mm-hmm. obsolescence, right? Absolutely. So it's the 16 of them, so the 100 that are in there are the ones that, that they go back. Explain what is in the 100. Yeah, the 100 works include um, projects from 1982 to 2016. Mm-hmm. What's 82? What's in 82? Well, that was Robert Adrian X's The World in 24 Hours, which mm-hmm. is our oldest work. We have also Electronic Cafe 84, which is a really nice older project. Um, both of those works are early networking projects where people were interested in the idea that telecommunications networks were ways of connecting people and, and having participatory kinds of events. It absolutely was. Electronic Cafe 84 is in particular a really fascinating story. That, that one is from the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics, and it was five sites that were connected um, over sort of early networks that mm-hmm. used the community memory bulletin board mm-hmm. uh, in order to have people in these like local communities make and share images with each other and, and use some sort of video writer to annotate them and exchange them back and forth. So they had a kind of it's restaurant. It's Instagram, but go ahead. Basically, yeah. yeah. I mean, they had a, they had um, spaces set up in um, in Koreatown and in Venice and at, uh, I think, a, a Mexican restaurant also somewhere in south central LA they had these kind of interesting like really community based spaces and they had people making you know work with these new tools and sharing it and um you know really kind of anticipating a lot of the things that would later happen mm-hmm. um but doing it in a way that was very community focused right right which is really interesting i mean when you saw these things then it was really something because it just didn't exist it just that that's now we're so used to these things and how easily we become used to these tools but at the time they didn't, these things, people didn't share things like this. They just never, I remember downloading a book on the internet at a server in a college and I kept saying, I've downloaded a book and they were like, so, and I'm like, you don't even understand what that means. I was, I was quite particular about it. I was like, this is bigger than you understand, right? This moment in time, this will be, this is like an aha moment for me at least. Yeah. Um, so the first work, the 82 work was the, a similar thing? Yeah. So um, that was an effort to connect a number of sites worldwide um, mm-hmm. using fax and slow scan TV and early internet, but it was only text-based. So mm-hmm. in that respect, As everything was back then. Indeed. And um, the so the idea was they would link up these different sites and kind of share works back and forth in mm-hmm. an ongoing kind of performance. So for each hour of the day, there'd be a different venue that would be producing and receiving and displaying. And uh, what survives from that is a, is a lot of documentation that shows kind of like sort of these very active scenes where people are making drawings and you know moving around the space and connecting with one another. Um, but I think that what it comes down to is this idea that like when the network becomes available to you as a possibility, I think that, you know, there's a lot of questions like, what can this enable me to do? And for many people, I would argue that one of the first things they want to do is just kind of connect with one another, mm-hmm. one another. And that means really creating culture, I think, through the network. Absolutely. Did you think about how it had done been done previously with other mediums? I mean, the first um, thing that was, first movie that was broadcast or it's a beautiful film of two men dancing, which is really quite lovely. Um, I don't know if you know that. It's a little tiny film that they made. I think it was Edison made it because they, they had men in the studio and they just were showing movement. And so it was quite artistic in a way. But did you did you think about how to talk about how different internet art is? Is it net art or internet art? Just net art. I like the team. I you like use the, the term net art in your book. Yeah, I like net art because it's sort of a little more casual and mm-hmm. it implies like a fuzziness about it that I think is appropriate given the complexity of the internet. Internet art makes it seem like it's something really specific to mm-hmm. me, which is not correct. You know, the internet is so has so many different forms so over time. So how do time. you define net art? What does that mean to you? Well, I like to define it as um, art that happens on or, or through the internet. Mm-hmm. The choice of the word happens comes from the same, you know, source as the title of our exhibition, which is an artwork by 
an artist duo called MTAA, mm-hmm. called um, Simple Net Art Diagram. So this mm-hmm. is the best explanation of okay, that art. Okay, go ahead, go for it. And it's just a diagram that shows two computers with a line connecting them, and there's a lightning bolt in between them. And the, there's a little label that says, the art happens here, pointing to the space between the computers. And MTAA made this work because they wanted to tell people that when they're looking at their net art works, what you see on the screen isn't the work. It's the exchange that's the work. It's the dialogue that's happening. Huh. And so it's not just about the object, but about like what's unfolding through that kind of um, moment of Which interaction. Which you can't do with a regular piece of art. You just stand in front of it, right? That it doesn't. Oh. Yeah. I'm, I mean, Sometimes I, <laughs> you participate with it or something, but there's, there's usually little participation, correct? Or you... Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that's important about the project that you were starting to refer to is that there is like a longer history of networked art that mm-hmm. goes beyond the internet. I mm-hmm. mean, you could argue that the Lumiere brothers yes. actually set up a communications network around the world with their agents that were exchanging these films mm-hmm. in five continents within, I think, the first two years of the cinematograph right. being invented. So, right. so networking is actually, I think, a pretty important part of art, but the computer and the computer network makes that kind of um, more powerful and a new form of art or new forms of art begin to proliferate because of that technology. An artist plus the internet isn't just an artist on the internet. It's a kind of different kind of entity. All right. We're going to talk about that when we get back. We're here with Michael Connor. He's the artistic director of Rhizome. They have a show now called uh, The Art Happens Here. And it's about uh, the history of art made on the internet and for the internet and, and various ways. And we'll talk about that and more when we get back. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. We're here with Michael Connor. He's the artistic director of Rhizome. We're talking about internet art or net art. Where There's a show now in New York at the New Museum about showing some of these works. Let's talk about the tools that are used in, in the, the works that you picked. You picked 16 works out of 100. Browsers, obviously, the top use tool or of art or or because it is the communications vehicle for a lot of things especially in the early internet well i think you know really when it comes to net art artists are using every tool that's connected to the internet one email? of the works that I, was there a lot of email? email yeah there's well one of the works i was going to mention in relation to tools would be blind spot by miao ying a chinese mm-hmm. artist who in 2008 um, googled every word in in the mandarin dictionary mm-hmm. an 1800 page dictionary and she whited out the words that were that were censored um, and it was kind of like an early stage in that initial um, mm-hmm. moment of Google and China trying to kind of come to a rapprochement, which, of course, is relevant in the present. And in, it certainly in is. The they did not come. They did, and then they didn't. People don't realize Google was 26% of the Chinese search market for a while there. Yeah, I mean, it was. It had an important role. And what's fascinating about that work is that, you know, you could say that the form of it is a book, but it wouldn't really have existed without, you know, internet Google. access, 
Google, all these other kind of tools coming into play. So all of those things are part of the making of that mm-hmm. of that piece and part of the tool set, I would argue. And what about email? Email, okay. So one of the interesting works that uses email is Mark Tribe, Alex Galloway, and Martin Wattenberg's um, Starry Night, mm-hmm. which is a great um, project to talk about because it uses Rhizome's own archive. It's based on Rhizome's text base. All of the emails that were sent on Rhizome's listserv in the 90s were curated into a special selected archive of the best emails that announced events or <laughs> offered art criticism. Yeah. And um, the text base um, was this incredible archive. And Mark and other people at Rhizome were interested in offering w- like new and artistic ways to access it. So Starry Night was an artistic interface to the text base that took the form of a starry kind of um, image. When you clicked on each star represented an email, when you clicked on that star, it would bring up a set of keywords. So if you clicked on the keyword net art, you could see all of the other emails in the text base were connected by a kind of constellation. Right, right. Um, and you could navigate to all the other emails f- attached to that keyword. That's wonderful. So it's a really interesting classic work of... Great way to think of email. Yeah. Absolutely, of yeah. internet aesthetics. And I also think like email is something that's like so momentary. To go back to it is actually really hard as we all... It is. You know, in our, we just forget about it's it. It's just hard, yeah. And sometimes maybe you wake up in the middle of the night. This is a different way of going back. Uh-huh. Yeah. Beyond. I never wake up. In the night. <laughs> I don't answer email anymore, just so you know, Michael. Oh, yeah? Uh, so don't send me one. Uh, I won't. No, I just don't. I just decided I'm done with it. It's probably a good idea. I mean, it's really a horrifying... Someone's like, did you get my email? I'm like, no, I did not. And they're like, I sent it. I'm like, yeah, I didn't get it. You're like, like a hero to me. <laughs> I just decided. I, have, I get 5,000 emails a day. I just begin with every email with, I'm sorry. It's just yeah. like... Yeah. That's the only... Yeah. There's a great Nora Ephron essay on this. Way, a hundred years ago, she wrote it about being, get, moving from excitement to email to non-excitement. All right, let's, so other other tools, one of them was the Dolly clones. I remember that. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about that, because that's an object. You're using, a, you're using an object to talk about surveillance, really. Yeah. And other issues around that. Yeah, the Dolly clones are fantastic. Explain the Dolly project. clones, because it's creepy and fantastic. Yeah, well, this is, this is a work by Lynn Hirschman-Leeson. We included it in the online exhibition. It's not in the gallery project, actually, because we, you know, it doesn't really speak to archiving questions yeah, in the same Dolly? way. Well, I mean, Dolly's been exhibited recently yeah. a couple of times, so we felt also... Where do you put the, Dolly? <laughs> explain Dolly. Dolly's All right, Dolly. Well, Lynn um, has been working on the questions of like cyborgs and mm-hmm. how technology would change the human for a long time, really since mm-hmm. the late 60s. Right. And so in the 90s when um, Dolly, the kind of clone sheep, was developed, uh, Lynn was sort of inspired by that. You know, she's not like a person that is overly, I would say, paranoid about new technologies that might change the definition of what it means to be a human or a living thing. She's more enthusiastic, but also kind of questioning. So her Dolly clones were a clone of herself and a clone of her alternate persona, Roberta mm-hmm. Brightmore, which is a, this kind of the identity twin, she's right. developed as right. a sort of artwork. Yeah. And she used to have projects where you could go to a hotel room and like open drawers and see Roberta Brightmore's... Um, like stuff and like understand her story from mm-hmm. looking at her stuff. She got a driver's license as this alter ego. <laughs> Robert. I mean, all these things that just I the idea of like, like a, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so she made dolls of herself and of this evil twin, as you call it. And um, no, it's an evil twin. But go ahead, move along. I don't know if it's evil. Yes, it is. It says evil in there too. I would recall oh, it does? It being okay. evil. Yeah. All right, I'll go with that. Okay. Um, and the dolls. It's are, always an evil twin. <laughs> just so you know, there's never not an evil twin. But go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. <laughs> I can't. I can't endorse this. All right. Okay. Um, so the dolls were little sculptures that sat in display cases in a gallery. They each had a webcam in place of one of their eyes, yeah. and they each had a website where you could go to their website and see what they were seeing. Mm-hmm. So they would be displayed in a gallery, and then people on the web could go and look at 
what the dolls were seeing in the gallery space. And they would upload, like, it was early webcam, so they would upload, like, every three seconds a still image of the gallery space. Right. Um, so it was interesting as a way of thinking about, like, what, like, a networked vision might be. You mm-hmm. know, now that we have cameras that are that we can call up all around the world, what how does that change our understanding of human vision? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was thinking about the internet user as a person who could see through the doll's eyes. Right. So as you click through, you could actually control the doll's heads uh, telematically from the web browser, mm-hmm. and then you would click through and see these different provocations about what it meant to be a person that could see through the network in this way. Right, and also right now, facial recognition, surveillance, all these issues around this, and 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 robotics in terms of creating cyborgs, these yeah, ideas. absolutely. I mean, I think that the understanding of what we think of as human is shifting as a result of technology and you know, this is a project I'm describing from the 90s that was obviously taking up these questions at an earlier moment in that discussion, which mm-hmm. is, I think, one of the reasons why a project like this is important to me because right. these conversations have a history that we can draw on and mm-hmm. I think help to contextualize where we are now in relation right. to things like facial recognition. Right. Well, you, did you have to feel like you stayed relevant to what's happening now? Because all these issues are in these pieces of art. At, in many ways, lots of different things, whether it's the Dolly clones or, or other things. One of the principles in Net Art Anthology was that we wanted to show the works one at a time so they could recirculate on social media and mm-hmm. sort of spark their own conversation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just in terms of Rhizome's own function as an organization, we're always kind of connecting with younger artists by doing interviews and projects. Mm-hmm. We have a grant program where we give out small amounts of money on the internet for um, with a very easy application. So we have like this kind of, you know, we speak to a public which is made up and of many emerging and young artists. And so by recirculating the works, we found that it was sparking these kinds of conversations where people were encountering the works and kind of being inspired by them in ways that, you know, in, in some cases we might have predicted and in some cases um, kind of not. Like this morning I was just looking at, well, this morning I was looking at a show at the Migros Museum in mm-hmm. Switzerland and there's a couple of, you know, recent works that are shown in the foreground, one by the, a Chinese artist in Guangzhou. In the background is a poster from 1991 or 92 by VNS Matrix mm-hmm. called The Cyber Feminist Manifesto for the 21st Century. Mm-hmm. And that was the first work that we presented in Net Art Anthology. And I can't claim that we are the reason that it's there, but I right. certainly feel like we've sure. kind of put something forward into the world and it's starting to circulate on its own in a new way as a result. Well, that's interesting because did you imagine the people who were making this art at the time thought it would survive or was it not? was it made not to survive? I mean, did you think people then... When you choose to do an internet or a net piece of art, you're making a choice of possibility of, and I want to again use the word obsolescence, but gone. Like, gone. I think that it varies. Some artists were thinking historically from the very start. Mm -hmm. For many artists, it never crossed their mind. And there's a lot of examples of people who, I think, didn't realize how attached they would be to the work that they made until it was inaccessible to them. And Mm -hmm. then they've, in some cases, experienced it as kind of like almost like a personal, like a real personal loss. Mm -hmm. Um, So it does vary. I mean, someone like Mark Tribe, the founder of Rhizome, was thinking about these questions early on, but it was partly because so many artists had already begun to lose their work and, Mm -hmm. and, um, and find that things were not you know, able to be sustained. It's somewhat ironic, the losing of the work, because there's there's a, there's a group, uh, just Lorraine Jobs just bought it, actually, Pop-Up Magazine, which creates shows, artistic shows, a lot of them about, a lot of them essays, phot- photography, discussions and stuff, music, and they don't tape them at all. They don't preserve them in any way. And that is it. When you, ha- when you see it, the audience sees it, and then it is gone. And that it's purposefully that way. Although they're very active so on social media, they're very active. They have California Sunday Magazine, other things. The premise is that the art is done and moves along. Yeah, and 
That is definitely a, a kind of aspect of Nararak practice too. The conscious decision not to hold on to something is really, you know, something that has its own artistic possibilities. Mm-hmm. So some of the works in Nararak anthology are only presented as kind of documentation. Um, there's a piece that is kind of an interesting one in that respect by Devin Kenny called Untitled Khalifa, and it's a performance that he did in, um, I think, 2013 in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. And he was interested in the new meme of Trayvoning, which is like, kind of like planking, but done by what he describes as like really horrible people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because Trayvoning was like lying down with Skittles and pretending that you were in the yeah. pose of Trayvon Martin. Right. And Which was an internet meme. It was an internet Terrible meme. Terrible. Yeah, it was, I mean, really awful. And oh, so Devin so was like... awful. On the internet. <laughs> 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 that, that is, is one of the most yes. awful. But. Yeah, something is very awful on the internet. So he performed as... He did a, his own kind of Trayvoning experience at this gallery space. And, and it kind of... Um, you know, was in Mexico City, so it was in a different context where people might have had their own associations. But he was interested in, like, embodying this very horrible position that people were taking. Um, And then, you know, just, you know, it really kind of existed as a a sort of moment in time. Mm -hmm. I think maybe another work that's sort of along those lines is Amalia Ullman's Ethera, Mm -hmm. which is an app that she developed that was intended as a kind of anonymous social media project in response to the way that people were feeling so much pressure to brand themselves online. Mm-hmm. Especially around mental health, um, people Brand find themselves. how it's well on, online. If you begin tweeting, for example, about your issues with um, depression, right? F- soon you attract followers that want to see content about depression, and you understand that when you tweet about depression in a certain way, you might get more likes. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of incentive to talk about mental health in a certain mm-hmm. way that becomes part of like a public persona, and that isn't necessarily productive for someone who's using those tools as a way of actually dealing with mental health. Like maybe right. speaking to your followers isn't what you need. Maybe what no. you need is release and catharsis, yes. a sense of human connection. So Amalia created Athera as an app that was a little bit similar to something like Snapchat, where you could make posts that were attached to a map and the, the um, posts would be visible for a certain amount of time and they'd go away. And they were always anonymous. And so people were using it as a kind of like a shouting into the void project to kind of release something they had to get off their chest. Right. And, um, and she did that for a while, and the, you know, the idea was that the kind of like the posts themselves would disappear, but it was very difficult, of course, to make like entire social media platform as an artist that had, you know, an explicitly sort of indie commercial vibe right. to it, like right. no user profiles, no ability to capture any data from people, mm-hmm. you know, there was no profit elements to this project at all. So in the end of the project, she kind of staged a funeral for the app itself mm-hmm. as the kind of closure of it. Right. So none of the content is available, the app itself is gone, and the project is now at a close. No data. But yeah. What? Yeah, well that was the... I guess she's not an internet company. She explicitly is not an internet company. <laughs> the other day was describing how these companies got started, Google and others, that a lot of the data they originally collected was garbage to them. They didn't need it, and it turned out to be gold. You know, that they, it was just extra stuff that was part of the search process, and they figured out that it actually was valuable. Did, is there any data projects you think were interesting, the idea of what the data, using of, and abusing of the data, really? Yeah, there's, I mean, of course, this is a big conversation among yes. artists, and it has been for a while. Um one of the projects that's in our gallery show is called Lungs by a, a duo called the from the UK called Yoha, mm-hmm. made up of Graham Harwood and Matsuko Yokokoji. And that project is using a database from the 1930s that was actually collected 
um, around the workers at a munitions factory in Karlsruhe, Germany, um, by the sort of Nazi officials that mm. ran that factory. They liked data. The Nazis like data. Yeah, and it was developed. I guess the database was developed using the punch card machines that IBM was supplying to right. the Nazi government at that point in time. So, I in the project they show in the gallery, they use this database and they kind of give um, a breathing sound to each entry in the database, which represents an enslaved worker. So, as a way of kind of rehumanizing the people that were um, suffering under this regime mm -hmm. um, through the data set that was created to oppress them. It's the idea of a, a kind of software memorial to mm -hmm. them using sound. And I was interested in this project as a way of thinking about the whole concept of like the database as being something that kind of controls us, but looking further back into its history mm -hmm. um, and, um, and you know, in a way of... Like, and giving it meaning. Giving it meaning and giving it... Um, Emotional depth. Absolutely, because each piece of data is a person in some way or some piece of a person. We're here with Michael Connor. He's the artistic director of Rhizome. We're going to take a quick break again now, and we'll be back talking about where art on the Internet is going and a little bit about stuff that already gets created every day and if that's art or not when we get back. They have a new show at the New Museum in New York City. It's called The Art Happens Here, and it's about net art. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that, that Israel should be able to participate Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. We're here with Michael Connor, the artistic director of Rhizome. They have a show in New York City at the New Museum called The Art Happens Here. It's about net art. And we're talking about a lot, you were talking about a lot of different things that people use and the tools they use, whether it be email or browsers or Flash or various things to create art. Where is it going? Where is art going? You're preserving the ones that created, but even as you speak, so much more is being created, right? It's like a constant, and and all, some of the stuff is 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 like I just went to see like about a couple of months ago, Carne in Arena, which was a VR artwork around immigration, where you put on the VR, you experienced being in the desert with immigrants. It was beautiful. There was all this beautiful. Um, VR art around it, and, and you were physically in a space that you felt cold. You walked around without your shoes. It was cool. It was really interesting way to get through the, the messaging around um, the message the artist wanted to talk about immigration. I thought that was a really wonderful way to depict that from an artistic point of view. Um, how do you, and that was also funded by Lorraine Jobs, who was doing a lot of photography art around immigration and things like that. Um, where are things going? What do you think the new technologies? What are you seeing? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's also a difficult question. I'm, mm -hmm. I've been in, doing this internet art business for a good while. I have luckily a co-curator who's more in touch with like the newer scenes, Aria Dean. She couldn't be here today. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that we kind of noticed in doing this project was that there are sort of distinct shifts that happen on the internet. And mm -hmm. one of the recent ones that kind of relates to what you're talking about is, um, you know, the way that artists have retaken a position within gaming. And I think, you know, 
Um, no, his, gaming is beautiful. Yeah, and I think that it's, it's, there's been a proliferation of tools that allow for um, games to be made more easily mm-hmm. over the past five years, let's say. Yeah. Or maybe eight at the most. And that's really important because, um, you know, I don't know if there's like a famous quote where Francis Ford Coppola is talking about how filmmaking will only be an art form when like the when like the 13-year-old girl can make a movie with her camera. Mm-hmm. And something similar applies in the in the digital realm where, you know, when gaming feels too complicated and inaccessible, people can't express themselves through mm-hmm. that platform as easily. Right. So, you know, we've had things like... Um, uh, really interesting work um, on the, the gaming front. Uh, one of the works from NetArt Anthology is by an artist that we love from the Bay Area named Porpentine. This is her... Um, uh, this is her project, um, Psychonymph Exile, which is actually um, a hypertext kind of narrative that um, brings people through this computer-generated landscape and tells this fragmented story and you click on the different... You click on the on the text to move through it. So it's actually kind of like a throwback in a way to like mm-hmm. earlier forms of net art, but it's bringing it into a Unity 3D environment. Right, right. Um, yes, and using Unity, it, I can see that, yeah. Using yeah. it as a way to Unity like... Unity is a gaming uh, soft way to design and develop games, but go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, and so she's um, creating this kind of game-like environment, which is very beautiful. The whole story is about um, working through trauma and mm-hmm. the fragmented nature of the game... Um, relates to the way that people experience um, reality in a fragmented way after a trauma. And and she's using the gaming platform, essentially, to do that because... Well, I think because gaming allows for the creation of a kind of speculative reality. I think that she's interested in in the world-building aspect of games, that through games you can create a world. Mm -hmm. And... In her, Through games, you do create a world. Yes. <laughs> and so the, for her, the work is really creating a world where people can experience this particular imaginary speculative way of working through trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, the the world building itself is the kind of artistic project. Right. Um, it, would it, would, and any other sort of technology you see promising around it? VR is obviously Yeah. One. Well, VR is quite promising. But I, I was going to mention AR. that one of the things that I think artists on the internet are really quite focused on now is um, there's almost like a blurring line between art and non-art that I see happening. Mm-hmm. So in NetArt Anthology in the last few years, there are projects like artists who are making a stock photo agency as an artwork. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my favorites is an artist, Rafia Santana, who's using um, the internet to kind of create a contemporary reparation scheme called Pay Black Times. She started this after the oh, election wow. in 2016. And it was basically like um, playback time. <laughs> yeah, pay, pay black time. Playback yeah. time. Okay. Play. Yeah. And it's, it was, you know, she time. was like thinking about the election and mm-hmm. how um, she was seeing like a lot of white guilt being circulated online. Mm-hmm. And she was like, let's turn this into a resource. So her project is that white internet users can buy meals for black um, artists and internet users. Mm-hmm. And she facilitates that and oh, has wow. done so successfully for, um, you know, for a couple of years. So there's, you know, gestures like that, which are like really material and they're, you know, they're quite economically oriented in a way and they're a little bit like it can be diff- difficult to differentiate in a sense between mm-hmm. like what's art and what's just a thing in the world. So let's just talk about what's just a thing because there's a lot of things that are published on the internet that are quite creative and you know what I mean for all the direct that's out there and then there's plenty you can do lots of art about the direct that's on the internet the reactive and quickness of it some of it is just Twitter can be very 
beautiful in a weird way. It can be funny. It can be moving. Um, lots of things you see on the net can be like even Tinder has a poignancy to it, right? <laughs> Doesn't it? It kind of does when the, how people pick pictures. You could see artists taking advantage of, of, of all these things. Facebook probably. There's probably like a wonderful thing to be done artistically about Facebook. Yeah. And um, I'm not here to like be a, you know, to litigate like what's right. art and what's not, especially right. because I agree with you that you know, what internet users do is already beautiful. Yeah, some you know, of Despite them. the best efforts of at Jack or whoever else. Yeah. Um, and I think that those things should be sort of understood as artwork. And the, the kinds of work that I try and champion and that we work often with at Rhizome, it's not like an artist that steps back and like paints a picture of what's mm-hmm. already happening, like positioning the artist outside of it as the observer that sure. has a privileged position, but artists that, that are like in that mix themselves mm-hmm. and that the work functions in that, um, in that kind of culture um, and then in that digital culture that it's kind of deeply engaged with it, that it's of digital culture and right. not something distinct. And what about commenting on digital culture, like the screen time and addiction and things like that? Because one of the things is you're consuming this over screens. And of course, there's all the countries around what screens do to our society. And art has always talked about how things, whether it's cars or television or something, affects us. There's been lots of art on those issues. Is that something you think will be part of it or or what these, they're using mediums that could be damaging to the society at large and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that the question of like screen time is a complicated one. You know, I was recently reading a statistic that 80% of white users um, say that social media is a distraction from the important things. And then 80% of black users think that social media is a way that important issues reach audiences that wouldn't otherwise be heard. And the symmetry of that statistic like is Mm -hmm. alarming. I think Mm -hmm. that we should be careful about thinking that Social media is bad because we're experiencing negative news on it or, right. or contact trauma. We already knew. Like, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. That's I mean, a really good but point. But all of these things oh, surface in artist work, you know? And like we every year we run a microgrant scheme in the summer. So people can apply with like their random idea mm-hmm. for a small grant um, from Rhizome. And I think through that we really surface like what people are interested in making work in response to now. And certainly like one of the things that I think has been emerging is just you know, imagine that we're at this point where the internet does show signs of kind of fracturing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're starting to see things like Russia doing an experiment where they're trying to disconnect from the internet for yeah. a day. And so, you know, the DNS system and like the international consensus that's required to keep that going. Um, we're seeing things like experiments with um, mesh networking or USB sticks and mm-hmm. these kinds of things. What do you do with a USB stick? Well, in, uh, in, oh, in Cuba, to... they run a kind of a massive media sharing Mm-hmm, um, network do. through right. USB called mm-hmm. El Paquete Semanal. And um, and I think those are the kinds of things that people are thinking about now because the idea of like an always-on... They trade them. They trade the USB sticks. And, well, there's also a kind of commercial um, venture yes. around it too. So yeah. it's, it's My a sons were just there. Thing. They were telling me about it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, and I think that people look to those examples and think like, you know, we shouldn't make the assumption that we will always have this kind of freely accessible global cloud infrastructure that we can tap into at any moment. It's mm-hmm. almost like we're coming to like the end of the moment where we had that um, like cloud infrastructure golden age. And it always had edges too. Mm-hmm. One of the works in the show is called NetArt Latino Database. And we worked with the um, artists that created this back in the early 2000s. And when we were presenting uh, one of the works that he chose as part of NetArt Anthology with us, he didn't like the idea of presenting it only in emulation because there's no cloud server located in Latin America that right. can run the kind of emulation that I showed you at the start of the show. Mm-hmm. So he made this like beautiful walkthrough video of the work that you can like watch on a much slower connection sure. and have a kind of good experience. Right, of it. right. And so that kind of thinking like that, um, uh, you know, it's kind of always existed. 
Um, and I think it's maybe coming into view now in a new way as these kinds of resource pressures. Sure, absolutely. Are, uh, whether we're going to be able to access it. That is true. You could do it in a different, you can present it in a different way. Because a lot of these, I, I, they must be dying like other people to use all the latest tools, like, right, to pick things and things like that. There's always going to be art created in analog. But how do you look at the, finish up talking about the, sh- the, the difference between analog art and digital art. How do you look at that? Is that a shift? Is that a break? Or or you could or not or or not at all? Because a lot of analog art is now all over the internet. Like I was thinking of this Ivanka thing that's going on, and uh, you know, with her vacuuming stuff, and it's every like they're using the internet to push out lots of art, and lots of stuff is being preserved online. Everything from the Dead Sea Scrolls to you know, there's all kinds of things. That's not art, but it's being preservation is happening on the internet in ways that we couldn't have imagined. Is there a break between the two of them or do you see, where do you see that going? I mean, I see both continuity and change mm-hmm. and certainly in this project um, you know, thinking about how networks um, have always been a part of art making has tried to inform, we tried to have that inform our thinking but um, the computer is really a transformative tool mm-hmm. and I think it's, you know it's like that thing um, there's a famous kind of NRA quote, you know that people, uh, guns don't kill people, people kill mm-hmm. people. But of course, the reality people with guns is... Kill as, people, but go ahead. What's that? <laughs> people with guns kill people. Exactly. Well, people plus gun is different than just people. Right. And artist plus computer is different than mm-hmm. just artists. And I think that, um, you know, understanding that there is a kind of material difference that happens when um, when work is made in this way and circulated in this way is important to thinking about how how to sustain that work over mm-hmm. time and preserve it. And do you think artists are relying more on these digital tools, even art, even... Well, and everybody's use in some way is using these digital tools. Does it change the way we think of creation of art? Absolutely. The idea that you can make work on Canvas for an online audience is such an interesting one. And mm-hmm. artists have thought through that carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the works in Net Art Anthology by Artie Verkant is called Image Objects. It's a series of works that there are two-dimensional pieces that look like sculptures when they're photographed and circulated online. So they're meant to look different for a web visitor and a gallery visitor. Mm-hmm. And this was already a way of thinking about, like, how do I use the gallery space as, like, a networked environment um, presenting work for people all over the world to look at? I would argue that the Ivanka Trump performance of someone vacuuming is a performance that's staged for the Internet. Absolutely. Also. 100%. And, it, and that results in a different kind of work being the Commentary, made. everything is yeah. part of it. The commentary, the outrage over it, the delight over it. It's really, it's an interesting... So ultimately, it's all net art now. <laughs> it's all net out now. All right, I want to end on that. Do you imagine a day when there's just not, everything will be in this sort of holographic, you know, you could see, you could see where it could go. It could bring more art to people because they get to see more, or it could create this sort of strange, like, do you, what happens to the galleries going forward, the physical galleries? Well, you know, galleries have surprisingly withstood a lot of shocks already mm-hmm. as technology has changed. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, at the moment, the um, there's still something different that you get from standing in a space with people and moving your body around that you mm-hmm. are not getting other places. I imagine that in the future, the real question will be not that those places won't continue to exist or won't continue to be important, but it sort of becomes a question of access. Like, is it easier in the future to visit spaces virtually or does the apparatus needed to visit them virtually become hard to get, you mm-hmm. know? I really think that... Um, it won't be. You don't think so? No. There you go. Everyone, well, I remember suitcase telephones. Now everybody has one. Well, I think that, like, the question of, like, what is consciousness or something, mm-hmm. which is something that some of the artists in Net Art Anthology think through, 
is going to, you know, is going to mean that we have um, work that can address us in, you know, very different ways than what mm-hmm. we've seen so far. Yeah. Those kinds of like refiguring consciousness through technology, new new ways of like accessing the brain directly outside of the sensorium, those things will like allow yeah. for different artistic experiences. Absolutely. And we haven't even gotten to the haptic touch. Oh, yeah. It's going <laughs> to be wild. It will go, be wild. Yeah, it will be wild. <laughs> anyway, Michael, this is riveting and I'd love to talk more about it. I'm going to come visit the show. I urge you all to go look at it online. It's at the New Museum if you're in New York City. The art happens here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And thanks to all of you for listening. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. And please tell a friend about the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. Michael, where can people find you in this show online? They can find the online show at Mm anthology.rhizome.org. They can email me at michael.connor at rhizome.org. And they should buy the book. Okay. And you you were displaying some of this on Instagram. You're using all the social media tools. Yeah. When we present new works on NetArt Anthology, which continues through May, they can see those on um, our Instagram account which is rhizome.org, all spelled out, or twitter.com slash rhizome. And also apply for grants if they have artistic. Yeah, this summer we'll have the micro-grant call coming up, so sign up to our mailing list to hear about that. Great, thank you so much. Now that you're done with this, go check out our other podcast, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode, and thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.